both of them, particularly my mother-in-law, freaked out and berated us for making this choice. I knew in that instance, my mother-in-law was reacting out of fear. Can you talk more about the use of fundal massage after birth? I just found out that I'm pregnant again, and I'm terrified of tearing. Any advice to help avoid tearing the second time around? A lot of people say they have shoulder dystocia when really the shoulders just took a minute to make their way through. Like, that's normal. That's a normal variation. Now everyone's all worked up about the vaccine comments. <laughs> my God, what do they mean? What are they really thinking? Oof. We yeah. said what we're really thinking. <laughs> You're in charge. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Good morning. Good morning and welcome everyone to our September Q&A episode. Trisha, do you remember when we started our podcast and I said, let's do a Q&A episode every month. And I remember you saying, don't you think we're going to run out of questions? Don't you think people are going to ask the same questions? And I was like, oh, watch. <laughs> we're going to get like hundreds of unique questions. Isn't that, do you see now? Yeah, they're really it's, rolling it's in. It's amazing, right? Oof, we love it. We get a lot of questions on the same topic, but there's always enough of a variation that it makes it worthwhile to talk about it again. But there's so many nuances. So, all right, so let's get started. Or did you have something else today? Well, no, I think we have so many questions today that we are going to just jump right into the questions, except I would love to read the most recent review we received on Apple Podcasts, because I think those are always fun to share. Okay, let's hear it. So let's go. I take careful time to select the best references and resources as I grow in my doula work. Down to Birth Podcast is by far one of the best podcasts out there to empower women and to help inform anyone interested in birth. Trisha and Cynthia are obviously very passionate and serious about their work and have done outstanding work curating topics on pregnancy and beyond. I often find myself nodding my head vigorously as if I'm in the room with them. I've taken them as virtual peers in the birth world and value and respect the information and encouragement they share. Doulas, send this podcast to your clients now, exclamation point, exclamation point. Nice. Yeah, that is a good one. Aww. All right, let's start with our questions. Hello, wonderful ladies. I've been binging your show since I first discovered it a few weeks ago, and I've already learned so much. I'm expecting my first, and you've completely changed my mindset about birth. I am so thankful to you for sharing your knowledge with me. My question, however, is about care for my baby postpartum. I hear so much about finding a high-quality evidence-based provider for the actual birth, but not much for the baby afterwards. Any advice on the search for a pediatrician? I have no clue how to begin. Thank you again for your lovely podcast. All right. Thank you, April, for your question. You are right. We have not really talked about that a whole heck of a lot. I have one thought. What? One important thought. <laughs> Very hard to find, but if you can find a pediatrician who does home visits in the first two weeks, go there. And never look back. Ooh, set that bar high. I wonder how many still do that. Very few. And I don't understand why. I mean, it, how it's, it would not be that difficult to have a home health nurse. It doesn't even have to be the pediatrician in the first, you know, the baby's been examined at birth. It's had a full newborn exam. In the first couple of weeks, we're mostly just looking at weight. Any, a nurse can do a, new, a newborn exam. I just had a new friend to dinner this week, and she had her first baby in London. 
And she said when she had her baby, she said that she got a home visit every day for two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. Can you imagine? Because what's so great, I mean, it's under this whole premise of checking on the baby, but what's happening is that mom is getting contact interaction, the chance to ask questions, you know, these things are a great way to combat mood disorders like anxiety and depression. But let's answer this, this woman's question. So I think the first thing is become aware of your values. What are your values? I mean, do you know if you are, for example, more naturally inclined? So one way to first get a list of pediatricians that you might hear about in your area And you might want to ask some logistical questions like, do you have a certified lactation consultant on your staff? Do you take Saturday walk-in hours or do you have every morning walk-in hours in case the baby is sick? That is a really big advantage. But think about your values. So for example, you could ask, if my baby or toddler were to have an ear infection, what do you typically prescribe? Some pediatricians are going to say, antibiotics. Some are going to say chiropractic and garlic oil, and you have to just see what seems to fit better for you. Certainly um, when it comes to vaccines, I think everyone can agree on many things related to vaccines, no matter how controversial and hotly debated they are. That choice is important. You are this child's parent and no one's opinion matters as much as yours. So pediatricians who respect that you will always be the person to make every decision related to your baby, uh, I would personally put at the top. I totally agree with everything. I mean, the interesting thing is there's so much research and evidence, although there still is insufficient, but there's so much more on evidence-based care around birth and less on evidence-based care around newborns and children, right? So um, I think everything you said, I completely agree with. I think vaccination is probably the hottest variable, the hottest topic that's going to um, differentiate who you choose. I mean, if you are opposed to vaccines, you can't go to a pediatrician who's going to be pro-vaccine. That's just not going to work out. Yeah. Well. I mean, or, you you have to understand that things are usually worth, controversies are usually worth diving into. When your grandparents were born, there were between one and three vaccines, depending on when they were born. The 70s, there were 23 vaccines. Now there are 70 for every child from infant through high school. And in the next generation, based on the pipeline of vaccines in the making, it's estimated there will be between two and 300 per child. Uh, So, you know, maybe there's no limit to how many you would want to do, but many people have some kind of limit, right? So if you're expected as a parent not to question, not to research, not to make up your own mind consciously about what you are willing to do there, then you're not being respected as the parent of this child. There are parents, Mm -hmm. there are pediatricians out there who are fully respectful of whatever you want to do, a full schedule, a partial schedule, a delayed schedule, or nothing at all. It is your decision to make. We're here for informed consent Mm -hmm. and informed consent and the right to your own body. You know, it's either we grant it to people or we don't. And that's what we're here for. So we hope you will find a pediatrician who respects that um, they're not the final decision maker on everything related to your child. You are. Mm-hmm. And just as I said before, if your provider takes you late to every appointment, I think it speaks volumes about whether they respect you. That's my opinion. And this is just more for you to consider what speaks volumes to you about whether you are being respected as a client. And I think even more important, as the parent of this child, you and your partner have to agree on these things, but you and your pediatrician don't. Um, so 
you know, you want to make sure it's a relationship you really feel comfortable with and where you're respected and where you have autonomy. The other thing too, is it's always okay to change pediatricians. You might start with somebody and change later based on, you know, how your ideas change as you raise your kids. Yep. And you might find that some of them do meet and greets and have opportunities for you to talk with them and ask questions. So don't be afraid to ask them those questions. That's all she wrote for that one. Yeah, I guess that's it for that one. (laughs) Now everyone's all worked up about the vaccine comments. (laughs) My God, what do they mean? What are they really thinking? We said what we're really thinking. (laughs) You're in charge. (laughs) It's your body and then it's your baby's body. Period. End of story. That's how we feel. But you know, they want more than that. (laughs) <laughs> no, they're not getting it because they're the parent. And it's funny. Sometimes I have clients who uh, who say to me, uh, but Cynthia, did, did you do the vitamin K shot for your baby? Or Cynthia, did you do erythromycin? And I'm like, look, I am very happy to answer that question. But I'm very concerned that you're asking because you've trusted that I did my research and you're just going to go by with whatever my husband and I decided was right for us. But then you're not taking responsibility for your baby. So the, what our role is here is to have you step into that role. So we're happy to have all the conversations, but not so you can abdicate responsibility over to your, over to us any more than we would want you to turn it over to your provider. So that is all she wrote on that one. <laughs> and it's not an easy one. It's not. Well, I, let's leave it at that. It's not. It's only easy when you look back and realize all the work is behind you, but the, uh, it's, is very tough, very tough. It feels like it's endless, all the questions you mm-hmm. have and all the research you have to do, but don't be pressured into anything. These are all important decisions and they're yours to make. All right. Next one says, hi, do you have any advice for a mom who has a history of shoulder dystocia and hemorrhage? I've been trying to find good, honest info, but it's hard to find. Well, it is hard to find. <laughs> My advice for a mom who has history of shoulder dystocia and hemorrhage is to trust that there were probably some contributing factors in the labor that contributed to both of those things and modifiable factors for a future birth. So we know that hemorrhage is, uh, the risk of hemorrhage is increased with very long labors, with induced labors, with long labors that have high amounts of Pitocin. just because you had a shoulder dystocia, and I have no idea the severity of the shoulder dystocia that that does there's a difference between uh, snug shoulders and a true shoulder dystocia. Um, you know, yeah, can you imagine this mean, woman showing up going, "Does my baby have snug shoulders?" They're going to be like, <laughs> "What do you know, and who have you been listening to?" <laughs> now she's going to worry about whether they're snug. So is well, that is, yeah, is a it, lot of people say they have shoulder dystocia when really the shoulders just took a minute to make their way through. Like that's normal. That's a normal variation. Is this all so, based on ultrasound? No, this I, is based no, on her I think history. This is probably based her on history. yeah, history. But but was it a true shoulder dystocia? Because I think that when shoulders even take a minute to come out, often people will say that your baby had shoulder dystocia. A minute? Yeah, so the technical definition of shoulder dystocia is a delivery time between the head and the rest of the body of greater than 60 seconds. That's sort of like the standard definition. But if the shoulders take a minute sometimes, or if the provider has to provide any amount of traction to get the shoulders or any type of hand maneuvering to get the shoulders to come out, they may call it shoulder dystocia. But we know that the position you're giving birth in 
is a contributing factor. Um, and as I said, hemorrhage is also a modifiable risk factor because the number one reason that women have hemorrhage postpartum is uterine atony or a poor uterine tone, which can happen with very long labors, which can happen with moms who are um, having, you know, mul- multiple gestations, twins, or they're having their multigravita, meaning they are pregnant for third, fourth, fifth time. So yeah, if you had a history of it, I think it's important to make sure that you are upright, mobile, active, not in the bed, utilizing your body's um, natural movements to help the baby be aligned in the best position and maximizing your pelvic outlet at the time of birth. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code DOWNTOBIRTH at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sitz bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. 
And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. I always feel for women who are pregnant the second time and they had some challenge in their first birth. And I've seen this so many times and so many are coming to mind where they, they start to form a belief. Like I give birth this way, or this happens to me. Like if the first baby goes to 42 and a half weeks, they think they give birth late, you know, and one, one friend slash client of mine, um, her baby was breech and started coming out breech and they gave her a C-section after the baby started coming out breech, if you can believe that. Um, and then she was so worried about it the next time, or if they have preeclampsia, they think they're going to get that again. Mm -hmm. I had a client who had a fourth degree tear. It was brutal. It was so much for her to go through postpartum. Her second baby flew right out and there was no tearing. I, my first client who had six hours of pushing spent her second uh, pregnancy worried about pushing. The second baby flew out. So my thinking is always be mindful of any beliefs you're forming. This is a really useful question, and I'm glad you asked it. Now move forward with the preparation that Trisha recommended, but be careful that you don't form any beliefs that will drive up any likelihood of how you might give birth the second time or what the conditions may be. It really does have an impact. Yeah, it's important to remember too that on paper, the most predictable thing for shoulder dystocia, the thing that gets every provider worked up is big babies, right? Babies more than 4,000 grams. But we also know that most cases of shoulder dystocia, it's it's really about 50-50. The statistic is actually 48% of births that are complicated by shoulder dystocia occur with infants who weigh less than 4,000 grams. If you had shoulder dystocia, yes, there is a slight increased risk of it happening again. But should that mean that you go to a cesarean birth automatically? I would say no. This one's for you. All right. My question is in regard to handling family dynamics. At 10 weeks pregnant, we told my husband's family that we plan to give birth at the center, at the birth center, with midwives and a doula. Both of them, particularly my mother-in-law, freaked out and berated us for making this choice. I knew in that instance, my mother-in-law was reacting out of fear and ignorance as to what a birth center is and what skills and credentials certified nurse midwives have. Fast forward to now, I'm 27 weeks and there's still tension between my mother-in-law and me regarding that conversation and other hurtful comments she has made toward me. My question is, I feel torn. On the one hand, I don't want to mention anything about my pregnancy or birth to my in-laws as to avoid further confrontation, but then I also feel the urge to educate them as to why I'm going the midwife birth center route and perhaps ease their minds on how safe out of hospital birth is. I would love your feedback on this. I've thoroughly enjoyed your podcast and I've gained so much from you ladies. Keep up the wonderful work. Thank you, Amanda. Okay. Um, this is interesting because on one hand, you can have that conversation if her mind isn't made up. I just heard a quote that I agreed with so much. I forgot what it is. It was a very famous quote. Someone who was it? I think it's like the, the, one of the biggest things to fear or avoid is someone who has their mind made up. If her, if their mind is made up, you're in for a, a lot of potential self-doubt and a lot of stress. If they perceive themselves as having an opinion that should weigh more than yours, or if they don't respect that you and your husband are capable of making your own decisions and they're not open-minded, then I would say, don't waste your heart, your energy, your time on this. If they are even a little bit open, you can educate them. 
you could invite them to a prenatal and let them ask the midwife directly. I think that would be the best thing just to kind of remove you from it all. But you did say two things in your question that jump out at me. And I think that we should pay some attention to. One, you said berated. We don't berate people that we respect. So if that word came from you when you were typing, I mean, I don't want you to second guess it and think you didn't mean that. You know, you said berated, you felt berated. Even if that wasn't your mother-in-law's intention, that was your experience. And I think that says a lot about the nature of the relationship. And the second thing you said was other hurtful comments she has made toward me. Hurtful comments. My biggest observation in reading this is that she has a lovely daughter-in-law because you haven't said anything disrespectful about her. You sound very mature and very understanding. And I feel like most people could work out a problem with you probably very well. I'm just not so sure that your mother-in-law is one of those people. Yeah, my advice would be very simple here. Go on to have your beautiful birth center, midwife attended birth, and then educate them later. <laughs> well, what's maddening is you know that in that case, the if if this mother-in-law is closed-minded and not respectful, she's going to say you got lucky. And that's someone who remains fixed and is not going to understand. And that's going to be really an unfair comment if it comes. So we're just preparing you. You might hear that. Um, but your disposition is a blessing to you because you're not taking this personally very clearly. And, you know, that's a good thing. Let the evidence speak for itself. Nothing anyone says or does is because of you. That's right. And that right. is something you seem to understand very well. Four agreements right there. Yep. Four agreements. <laughs> that comes up a lot in our podcast. It does. Well, you know, it's stuff to live by. It, exactly. Exactly. Okay. It's translated into like 70 something languages. Yeah, it's an amazing book. Have y'all read it? If you haven't, pick it up. Okay, next one. Can you talk more about the use of fundal massage after birth? So yes, absolutely. We had an interesting conversation on Instagram around a post we did on the um, use of fundal massage after birth. So let's just remind our listeners what it is. Um, fundal massage is the use of basically your provider checking your abdomen after birth to check the tone of your uterus. So there's a difference between checking and then massaging. So checking your uterus after birth is normal and necessary. Massaging the fundus after birth, which is pretty routinely done, is not necessary in most cases, especially if you've had Pitocin. So this is what the post was about, that the evidence actually says that if you've had Pitocin, um, a dose of Pitocin for postpartum active management of third stage, whether that's IM or IV, there is no additional benefit to massaging the fundus after birth. And massaging the fundus is very uncomfortable. Um, if anyone of you listening has had it done, you know what I mean, and it isn't necessary. Now, if you haven't had Pitocin and your uterus is a little bit boggy, or your bleeding is a little bit much, it is not unreasonable to use your hand to just gently uh, massage the fundus briefly to try to get it to contract. Better yet is to put your baby to the breast, keep your baby skin on skin. But um, I think it's just important to distinguish between checking the fundus and mas massaging the fundus. You absolutely have to check the fundus after birth. You do not have to massage unless there is indication to do so. And if there is Pitocin on board, it's not helpful. And it shouldn't be done without your consent. Absolutely. I mean, nothing hands on the body should never happen without your consent. 
Um, I think a lot of that happens. It definitely does. I mean, it's because it's such a routine thing. It's just, oh, I'm going to check your uterus now. And then in the checking of the uterus, it be quickly becomes, you know, turns into a massage if the provider doesn't feel like the uterus is contracting the way they want it to, or if the tone is not the way they want it. I understand implied consent. If it's, if it's truly implied, I think being there doesn't qualify as, as implied consent. Oh, you're in the room. So that means we can do whatever we want to you. I think any, any time you're initiating some type of manipulation of the body, you need to ask you need, or you need to explain and make sure. Perfectly put. Yeah. So perfectly put manipulation of the body. That's my feeling on it. Do you have any tips for preventing having a big baby? This has to be someone who hasn't listened to the podcast yet. (sighs) Birth weight is just a special category. I've heard that it's linked to two things. So that's what I teach that it's linked to a genetics, like we're babies big at birth in your family and in your partner's family and B how nutrient dense is the food that you eat. And the more nutrient dense your food, the more your baby is going to thrive and pack on weight. Um, if small babies run in your family, then you can have an absolute perfect baby who's on the small side, but all things equal, a big baby is indication of it's a healthy scenario, right? Yes. I mean, I just had a client Go ahead. There are just so many factors that go into the size of your baby that I don't think that worrying about, I, there should be no reason to worry about having a big baby. That's for sure. Um, and big, I mean, we just, we just know big baby, giving birth to a big baby is not the problem that we're, the, the fear around a big baby is not really over the size of the baby. It's all around this disproportion of the head and the shoulders and the risk of shoulder dystocia. But that doesn't come from growing a healthy big baby. That comes from an imbalance um, in the development of the baby based on how your body's managing your blood sugar. This conversation reminded me that I just got a text from a client. I just found it on August 24th. See the picture? I can't see her it. name is okay, yeah. a client of my name, Veronica. She wrote, hi, Cynthia. I just wanted to share that our baby boy arrived last week. He's a big guy, nine pounds, nine pounds, 10 ounces. And you were right. Everyone laughed when he was born. So, and joked that we could just throw away the newborn diapers. Cause mm-hmm. I've always said all that happens when you have a big baby is everyone laughs. When you have a small baby, they take the baby away for testing. So it's really good to embrace the idea of trusting whatever size your baby is meant to be and put your energy where it counts, which is on fetal positioning and spinning babies. That is one thing not to be afraid of. Yes. Take it from, take it from a small framed woman who had a nine and a half pound baby herself. I mean, they're born all the time. That's not an anomaly and it's not luck. It's normal. It's everyday stuff. Yes. One in 12 babies is quote big. I mean, that's over 8, 13, 1 in 12. That's hardly an anomaly. That's like 8, 8% of the and time. And remember, it's not those just, we just said this in the prior question. Those aren't, most of the time, those aren't the babies that are getting stuck anyway. Isn't that interesting? It's fetal positioning. And maternal positioning. That's why being upright and unmedicated in labor has so many positive benefits to birth. So, um, Contact us and let us know how you feel now after hearing that. Because if you still have that fear, we want to hear about it. And then we want to know the size of your baby when their baby's born. (laughs) Yeah, we want to know that. Okay, next one is a breastfeeding question, which reads, I've been using the Haka during all breastfeeds, and things have been going really well until recently. 
I hate to waste any milk and I want to collect it all, but recently my breasts feel extra full when my baby is feeding and I have to use the haka actually at the start of a feed just to make it easier for my baby to latch. I saw your post on Instagram about oversupply and the use of a haka and I'm wondering if I should stop using it. If I don't use it, I get soaked every time I feed. Please advise. Thank you. So the haka wasn't around when we were breastfeeding. What's a haka? Is it the thing that, um, yep. So a haka is a little uh, suction device that um, basically you compress it and you put it on your breast. And when you're, you know how when you're breastfeeding on one side, you leak on the other side, you're leaking. So yes. it was developed to catch the leaking milk so that you wouldn't waste any of the precious drops of breast milk. Oh boy. Right? A great tool, a great concept, but I have seen it create a lot of issues with oversupply. Oh, over really? Yes. And why? Because it's suctioning. Why would it create oversupply? Well, because once your um, once it's on and your milk start flow, your milk starts flowing. If you have the continued suction going, your breast will just keep flowing milk out. So while it's so not, it is a suction. It's a suction. Yes, but it's not like a pump. It's not a mechanical suction. It's just like reverse pressure, but it's sustained. Mm-hmm. So it will continue to draw the milk out. Now, not for everyone, and this is why it doesn't cause a problem for everyone, but if you're really responsive and your letdowns happen really easily, it can you can be nursing on one side and filling the haka with two or three ounces on the other side. So then when your baby goes to switch, switch sides, now we've taken the milk out of the breast, right? And a lot of times babies need both breasts to feed on. I did not see that coming. Right. But they've collected it. But so they would have it. to. So then the question is, are they storing it or are they um, feeding it to the baby? And if you're feeding it to the baby, then it seems sort of like a waste of effort because now you got to get a bottle and feed it to the baby. And if you're storing it, you're actually taking milk that the baby needed at that feed or the next feed. But if your body's really responsive to making milk, it will just keep making more. And now you're storing an ounce or two every time you feed, and now we have an oversupply issue. Finding the perfect pregnancy and breastfeeding bra is no easy task. Your search is now over. Meet Davin and Adley, a mother-owned pumping, nursing, and maternity bra company with a unique, comfortable, and stylish cropped cami. This item is perfect to wear all day long from day one of your pregnancy right through the end of your breastfeeding journey and probably beyond. The Amelia Cami makes pumping and breastfeeding easy while looking and feeling good on your body. It works seamlessly for both wearable pumps and flange pumps, and you can breastfeed in it. It also has a beautiful stretch lace back. You can sleep in it, dress up in it, go out in it, whatever you want to do in it. And trust us, the quality in this item and all of their items are top notch. They're soft, durable, and attractive. These bras will truly go the distance. Davin and Adley carry a gorgeous selection of maternity and nursing wear, and they have an innovative one-piece breast pad that we've never seen anywhere else. So no more losing those solo breast pads, ladies. Go ahead and check out the full collection of maternity and nursing items at davinandadley.com. And use your promo code down to birth to save 15%. All right, breastfeeding moms. Do you want to know one of our all-time favorite items for your nursing journey? If you know us, you probably could guess it. Yep, it's the Silverette Nursing Cup. These little nipple heroes not only protect, but also heal because they're made of real silver. It is naturally antimicrobial, antifungal, and anti-inflammatory. 
These little cups will be your best friend in the early sensitive weeks of breastfeeding your baby. And our favorite part is they last literally forever. You can pass them on just like you would a favorite piece of jewelry. Head on over to silverettusa.com and use promo code down to birth to save 15%. You know, I see another challenge with this only because I'm trying to imagine if I had one of these hakas when I was breastfeeding my son, I used to leak on the other breasts and I'd have to hold something there and absorb the milk that was coming out. But on the flowiest day, it probably wasn't I probably wasn't secreting more than like a half tablespoon or tablespoon of milk on the other side, right? Mm-hmm. That's normal. Sound reasonable? That's normal. Yeah. So what I'm thinking is just for me, because I was always going to be prone to any kind of postpartum anxiety, it's like if you're trying to treasure and capture, I know it is liquid gold and I know that feeling of wishing you had more milk stored and everything, but if we're at the point where we're trying to savor a, like a thimbleful or a half teaspoonful of milk and go and save it, I just worry about the kind of pressure and anxiety that puts on women. I mean, what happens when you spill breast milk? It's it's so upsetting, right? We women, women cry when they spill breast milk, understandably. But this notion of it's almost like if you're trying to build wealth by like saving a penny at a time. I, I worry about the mentality mm-hmm. of saving every drop because of the anxiety that can come with that and feeling you waste. If we're thinking of wasting breast milk because a few drops or even a tablespoon gets out, that's a lot of pressure that a woman is putting on herself. Yeah, it almost sets you up for the scarcity mentality. Like That's exactly my point. Yeah. And yeah. then the comparison pressure too. Well, my friend's haka, she gets two ounces every time she hakas, and I only get a couple milliliters. Like, what's wrong? Um, my feeling is just keep the milk in the breast and let your baby remove it. It's easier. Now, I do. I, we're not going to get into all the ways in which you can strategically use a haka to increase your supply if need be. That's another discussion. But I do think it's a great tool when used correctly. But if this, in this case, if this mom is needing to use the haka at a start of a feed to relieve the pressure in her breast just so that her baby can latch, she clearly is overproducing. And that's just keeping her in a cycle of having to remove milk to get her baby on when really what you want to do is get the supply and demand in sync. I mean, that's always the goal with breastfeeding. We want your supply to meet your baby's demand and really, you know, a little bit of variation on the plus side is okay, but not a lot. And it's just worth mentioning that we have mini episodes always coming out on Mondays and Trisha has a trove of good little mini episodes out there on breastfeeding. So definitely check those out for a lot more of Trisha's incredible wisdom (laughs) and experience as an IPCLC. Hmm. Those are really good episodes. Thanks for that. Um, Okay, this is sort of a silly, funny one. Have you ever heard that hiccups in the womb can be related to cord compression? No, I haven't. Is that a thing? I don't think so. Oh. I haven't heard that either. Like as if the baby isn't getting enough air. Is that the implication yeah, so. or something? Yeah. That doesn't sound good. I don't think hiccups are any concern. They are not any concern. Oh, well, then it can't be cord compression. No, I I, that's what I mean. I mean, is it possible that a bout of hiccups could be triggered because the baby squeezed their cord for a little bit? Because sometimes they do that. You know, they grip, they grip, whatever, maybe, but who cares? Um hiccups oh they grip it with their own finger hands you know? uh-huh, they can yeah oh i thought mm-hmm. you meant like if it's all twisted and they're just not getting air okay. okay no nothing pathologic or dangerous about hiccups in the womb 
So we can eliminate that right there. Hiccups in the womb are totally a normal part of their neurological development. And you'll see that when the baby comes out, they hiccup constantly, right? Also not a problem. Their digestive systems are so neurologically immature um, and hiccups are just part of the developmental process. That's when you teach your baby to hold their nose and count it down and see if it goes away. <laughs> That's when you put your baby to the breast and you breastfeed them and they go away. All right. Um, let's see. Moving right along. Oh, here we go again. It's another shoulder dystocia. What? We got a lot of worry about what this. Up? Okay. Here, this is a perfect example of what I meant about snug shoulders. The question says, I had a 10 second shoulder dystocia with my second and my doctor alluded to a C-section for my third. How do I avoid this? Well, I don't think a 10 second shoulder dystocia is a real shoulder dystocia. That to me would be what I call snug shoulders. You know, maybe they just took a minute, they, not, a, not a minute. They took 10 seconds to maneuver. Yeah. So what I want to know is who told you it was shoulder dystocia? Right. Her doctor. That's who I want to talk to. Right. And why? Because. Why did they, so here's the question. Are they uninformed or did they have a reason for saying so to cause you doubt or fear? I mean, let's, that's the part I want to talk well, about. Well, probably this mother had a, in quotes, big baby and shoulders were slightly snug and it, you know, took a minute or took maybe moving the mom a little bit, or maybe took the, the provider had to manipulate the baby just a smidge. And so now she's been told that, you know, she's likely to have a shoulder dystocia the next time around and should consider a C-section preventatively. Well, so she's formed a belief that she had shoulder dystocia and now we're rocking her world by saying that isn't shoulder dystocia. So now the work that, that you have to do now is to change your belief into one that is aligned with the fact that you did not have shoulder dystocia. And you don't want to say, I did not have shoulder dystocia, because then you're putting shoulder dystocia in your mind. And this is a hypnobirthing thing. But you would want to say, my baby came through me perfectly and easily. Because that is exactly what it sounds like is the case. Yeah. And regardless of size, my baby knows how to navigate my pelvis. All right. Hello, I have recently started listening to your podcast and it is totally awesome. I have a question which I'd love to have you weigh in on. I had my first child two years ago and I had a home delivery with a midwife, very hands-off, and birthed my baby naturally. Everything was fine. I ended up with a fourth degree tear, which included a, quote, buttonhole tear through my vaginal wall and into my rectum. I had to have an OB repair post-birth as it was too bad of a tear for my midwife to repair at home. This led to about nine months of extreme pain with bowel movements, difficulty sitting, and general pain, I'm assuming with sex as well. Mm. I just found out that I'm pregnant again, and I'm terrified of tearing. Any advice to help avoid tearing the second time around? Here are things I plan on doing differently. I'm birthing in a tub, and I'll be birthing on all fours. I was sitting on a birthing stool for my first birth. Okay, this is exactly what I was saying earlier about forming a belief after our first, I even think I said a fourth degree tear in that example. Um, this is exactly what happens. You spend the second pregnancy just terrified that it will happen again. I think the best thing you can do, birthing on all fours is fantastic in a tub, great. I think the most important thing to do is see a pelvic floor specialist. You mean in this pregnancy? I mean in this pregnancy. Yeah. Now, 
they can evaluate. Look, this does not mean you'll tear at all the second time around. You likely tore because of the baby's position and because of the position you were in. Um, it's possible that you have a, a pelvic floor that could use some toning that would serve you to do some exercises in your pregnancy. You will know that by contacting a pelvic floor physical therapist. And if you work with them in person, they can evaluate scar tissue. They can teach you things, but some are even doing work virtually now. But I think it will really help to get past the fear and to make you realize that you're taking matters into your own hands and reducing the likelihood of tearing again. Um, your midwife didn't do that because midwives are trained in only doing first and second degree tears. So it is normal and customary that you would have had to go to a surgeon for a tear of that significance. Absolutely. Yeah. I would avoid the birth stool. I would also uh, would say that, I mean, the birth stool is a great, um, the birth stool is a great tool for, for, uh, helping moms get the sense of pushing, but it, it does seem to be associated with, uh, increased risk of tearing. So I would stay off the birth stool. I would, the hands and knees, as you said, is great. Uh, we know that being in water re- decreases the risk of a third or fourth degree or fourth degree tear. And it's, I think, you know, it's not likely, it is not likely that that would happen again. It could be, it's very likely related to your baby's position. There could have been a hand up at the head or something like that, that this is, you know, I can understand why she feels this way. That is a hard recovery, but we have to trust that we have to trust that it can be different. We have to trust that, you know, just because something happened once does not mean it's going to happen again. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say, just again, from a hypnobirthing slant here is create affirmations. You can pin them up around your house if that makes you feel good. Some people really like to do that, but be able to recite to yourself affirmations such as my baby comes through me easily and gently. My baby comes through me smoothly, making making sure you don't use the word tearing in your affirmations. You want to say that which you do want in your affirmations, um, nothing you have to negate. So uh, when you get in bed at night, just visualize your baby coming through you so easily. Visualize yourself laughing. Visualize yourself saying, oh my gosh, my perineum is intact. I can't believe it. Just really get that deep in yourself that you look forward to birthing this time because it's going to go so smoothly. It can only serve you to actually prepare by working with a pelvic floor specialist, but also to really get into the mind that this is how it's going to go the second time. Nutrition is also really important for um, perineal integrity. So making sure that you are doing everything and anything you can to have a very balanced, healthy, um, nutrition and diet in, in this pregnancy. Yeah. Especially minerals. Yes. Get all the minerals. Should we answer this last one real fast? Sure. If someone is planning a natural birth, how often do you see them change their mind in the middle and go for the epidural? That is something I rarely hear about. However, I can tell you in the vast majority of those instances, if not every one that's coming to mind, it's because of a very long labor and the woman just feeling like she needs a break. I have taught a ton of people. No one is coming to mind. No one who said, oh my gosh, that was so much harder than I thought. And I got the epidural, but I have heard many birth stories where the woman said, I was exhausted. I needed a rest. I needed a break. I got an epidural and it was the right thing because I needed to recoup. So just if you do visualize getting an epidural, envision doing it, feeling like you're welcoming the rest rather than like, oh my God, I I couldn't take it. I couldn't just let's get that 
out of the mind Mm. and viewing it as a good tool that it is for rest when you need one. Exactly. I mean, my best, if, you know, we wanted to put a number on it, my best gauge would be the transfer rate of home birth, which is around 10%. And most of the time it is for almost all the time is for epidural and rest or hydration and rest. So, all right, cool. All right. Another Q and a down. If you enjoyed our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share a favorite episode or two. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Down to Birth Show or contact us and review show notes at downtobirthshow.com. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always... Hear everyone and listen to yourself. There's so many tricks. It's incredible the energy human beings put into trying to get rid of the hiccups. Oh, drinking off the back of a cup. That works every time. Does it? Oh my gosh. That's always my go-to. I guess guess there are real... It works. I don't know why, but it does. It's clumsy. It's it's sloppy. (laughs) You can't just do that anywhere. (laughs) If you get good at it, you can. I guess you can. I guess you can. (laughs) Has to be a really full glass of water. All you and all your tricks.